0: Um, the rest of you, find your place in Luke chapter five, Luke chapter five. as we open the word of God together, let's stand look at the first 11 verses in Luke chapter five. We're continuing our series, 2020 vision uh, last Sunday and this Sunday talking about getting a vision, or sharpening the focus of that vision in the workplace. How do we stay on mission with our vision in the workplace? And uh, I think we see a great illustration of that in Luke chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. It says, So it was, the multitudes were pressed about him, speaking of Jesus, to hear the word of God, that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret, which is another word for the Sea of Galilee, and saw two boats standing by the lake. But the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. Then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and he asked him to put out a little from the land. He sat down and he taught the multitudes from the boat. When he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we have told all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish and their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and to help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will catch men. So when they brought their nets to the land, they forsook all and followed him, Father. I pray this morning that you would instruct us by your Spirit in your truth about how you would have us be a witness in everyday life. Lord, for many of us, that means because our workplace consumes so much of our time that that is our greatest opportunity. It's our greatest mission field to be a witness for you and for your glory. So instruct us, equip us in your word that we would leave here on mission with a passion for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. George Sweeting has a story that's recorded in the devotional guide, Our Daily Bread. He tells the story of a fellow by the name of John Currier who, in the first half of the previous century, was charged with some level of... of, uh, whether it was second degree, first degree, I can't remember, but he was charged with murder and he was sentenced to life in prison, but after a certain amount of time, he was actually paroled and sent to work on a farm in Tennessee. He was to finish out his sentence working on this farm in Tennessee when it was discovered that perhaps maybe he was not as involved in this whole situation, in this murder, as at once he had been accused and implicated. And so a message was sent, and of course, this was the day in the days before computers and emails and and uh, cell phones and all of that, but a message was sent a letter was sent to the farm that he was to be released, and that he wouldn 't have not have to serve any more time there on the farm. Unfortunately, that letter got lost in the mail, and after the letter was lost in the mail, John Courier continued to finish out a live sentence isolated on that farm where He was never able to enjoy his freedom. I've heard it said by one of the famous pastors of recent years, and I can't remember which one made this statement, but I like this statement enough that I remembered that. It was simply this, good news is not good news if it doesn't get there in time. Good news is not good news if it doesn't get there in time. In the case of John Courier, it had not gotten there in time. It did not get there. The letter did not arrive to where he was serving out this sentence. You and I live in a world, most of you work with individuals, go to school with individuals. And by the way, as I refer to the workplace, for those of you who are students, high school, college, you name it, middle school, realize that... uh, in biblical times, a lot of times their education was an apprenticeship, so look at your school right now, at least as your workplace, because it's preparing you for your vocation, it's preparing you for life, and it is your mission field at this point. So let's, let's look at our, our place of education, our place of work is kind of interchangeable as we work our way through this text this morning. We work and go to school with people who need to hear the good news. It's not good news if it's not delivered to them in time. Now, last week we saw, as Jeff reminded us a moment ago, work is God's righteous creation. Work itself was not a curse, it was created before the fall, before sin entered into the world. So, work is not a consequence of of living in a sin fallen world. It's the resources we have to work with. The natural resources, human resources, you name it, they are all under the the curse of sin. We live in a sin-fallen world, but work itself is even redemptive. We are to redeem the time, we're to redeem our work, we're to make the most. We can live a a fulfilling life and we can find joy and enthusiasm even in our work when we understand it in the context of Colossians 3.23 that we're called to serve the Lord Jesus Christ in our workplace. We saw that that word vocation comes from the, uh, the Latin root there has to do with to call, vocar, calling out. So we need to look at our vocation as a calling. And if we find it totally impossible to ever do that, even biblically speaking, we need to pray, Lord, I'm in the right vocation, I'm in the right calling, I'm doing what you've called me to do with my life. Now, Jesus had established his purpose and his calling in Luke chapter 4. Before we come to chapter 5, in, in chapter 4, if you look back, just maybe want to flip back a page in your Bible. Uh, Luke chapter 4, beginning with about verse 15. We see that Jesus taught in their synagogues. He was being glorified by all. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. He stood up to read and He was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah when he opened the book. Here's what he explained about his calling. He read from the place that said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of our Lord. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant. He sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him, as if to say. And by the way, we know that when Jesus spoke or when he read scripture, he spoke or he read as no one had ever spoken or read before. He spoke as one who had authority. So they were, uh, with their eyes fixed on him, waiting to see what he was going to do to expound this text. And he said, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus was announcing in the church setting, if you will, in the synagogue, in the religious setting. He says, I'm on mission, and the mission has started, and I'm about my father's business now. And he made it clear what his mission was about later in, in Luke chapter 19 and verse 10. Luke will summarize Jesus being on mission when he says, the Son of God came to seek and to save that which was lost. He was about that mission very publicly, but it was, you know, this was taking place in the, in the context of the church. And great crowds were in the synagogues, and I think it's awesome when great crowds come to corporate gatherings of worship. You know, the church is the body of Christ. It's not building, it's not brick and mortar. but we are called to gather together, corporately, as the body of Christ, to worship and to be equipped with the Word of God. And I think it's wonderful when there are great crowds in places of worship, but you and I know that we're not going to engage the majority of the people in this world in our places of worship. And so we've looked in previous months and weeks about getting a vision for the home and a family, and I think it's great, and it's, it's got to be a priority that we bring Jesus into our homes. By the way, Peter had done that. It wasn't out here in Luke chapter 5 when Jesus is using Peter's boat. That's not when Peter first met Jesus. They had already met before. As a matter of fact, Jesus had been in Peter's home. We're going to read in chapter 4 that Peter's mother-in-law had been healed by Jesus right there in Peter's home. And I think that says, you know, know we like to pick on Peter, don't we? Peter's always kind of, you know, open mouth, insert foot kind of guy like some of us. We like to pick on Peter, but think about it. Peter had to be a pretty good fellow. Not only did he invite his mother-in-law to come live in his home and was taking care of her there, that's pretty cool, but he was excited about having Jesus come and, bring healing to his mother-in-law in his home. So I think that says Peter was probably a pretty good fella, even though we like to give him a hard time from time to time. And, and so Peter had had Jesus in his home, and it's wonderful, folks, when, when we bring Jesus out of the places of worship and into our homes and into our lives, and we win our kids and our family members to faith in Christ, that is a context, a missions context, and we've got to be serious about our homes and our families and reaching them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But if we spend 60 to 65% of our waking hours in the workplace, then obviously, if we're going to live a life on mission for Christ, then that's got to be a huge mission field in our hearts and in our minds. The need is for Jesus to be a big part of our workplace. For the early followers of Christ, the gospel was integrated into the workplace that's why we know so, so much about so many of the early Christ followers don't we I mean we know what their jobs were more often than not when we speak of the author of this gospel here Luke most of us know what Luke did for a living Luke was a yeah a physician Luke was a doctor we know that about Luke we know that he traveled with Paul and that God used his vocation as part of a calling to further the gospel Now, Paul, he was on mission. We might say he was an itinerant missionary. He was an itinerant evangelist. He was an apostle going out, but Paul had to be bivocational at times. There were times he had to do something else to make a living. We know that Paul also had a job as a tent maker. See, we know those things. We know about the workplace because it was a big part of the life of those early Christ followers. Matthew was a tax collector. That's right. So there are people that can work for the IRS and be on mission for God. Amen? Oh, me. I did my taxes this week, right? Lydia. All right, ladies. What was she? A seller of purple. On mission for Jesus Christ. Joseph, the father, the earthly father of Christ, right? Joseph was a carpenter. We know those things because so much of their life was ingrained in their story uh, and so much of their workplace made up a big part of who they were and, and what they were about. And so here we, we find Peter mentioned predominantly, and of course Andrew was along, and, and we know that James and John also had this same vocation. They were fishermen. This was their job. This was what they were doing for a living. So this text, to me, illustrates how we can be on mission for. Christ in the workplace. On mission for Christ. You say, well, how can I do that? Well, first of all, consecrate your work as a platform for the gospel. I want to challenge some of you to do this this morning, even for the first time. Consecrate your work as a platform for the gospel. Look at verse 1. So it was a multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God. That's where the crowds were. They were out there. Yes, the crowds came into the synagogues. Yes, they were crowded into Peter's home. At one time there in Capernaum, they were so pressed that they had to take a roof off of the house to get a lane into Jesus. So there are crowds in those settings. But the, the biggest crowds we can ever encounter are usually going to be in our everyday work, our vocation. The people we encounter throughout the day. And they pressed to hear something. They came to hear something. The Word of God. Think for a moment about the conversations you have. I know, uh, you know if people t- today talk about conversations they have around the water cooler. Probably 80% of you aren't having conversations around the water cooler. We have different people who have different vocations, different jobs, different callings. I- I- if you're a homemaker, the conversations are taking place around your home, but other workplaces represented here. What are the conversations that you're having? What are the conversations you're having, and how quickly do you get to the subject of the gospel of Jesus Christ, your very reason for existence? How often do you get to that subject matter in the conversations that you're having? I believe people want to hear something real. Yeah, we live in a day and in a time where everybody wants to share their opinions. But in this day of, of, of tweets and Facebook messages coming left and right, and, and everybody in the workplace and in the community sharing their opinions, I believe folks are looking for something real. I believe they want to hear the Word of God. I believe they want to hear, thus saith the Lord. It's okay for you to say, listen, I would like to hear your opinion on this matter. Can I share mine? By the way, do you have a moment for me to tell you what the Bible says about that? And look for those opportunities. That's where the multitudes are. In verse 2, we see that he saw two boats standing by. The fishermen were gone from them. They were washing their nets. They thought they were done for the day, but there was still, still some work to do. There was still some important work to do. And Peter would discover that. Now, Jesus got into one of the boats. You might want to underline that in your Bible. If you write in your Bible, if you take notes, write that down. Jesus got into one of the boats. What was a boat to a fisherman? See, a boat was his work. A a boat was his platform, if you will. The, The boat meant everything to Peter. He couldn't do anything concerning his vocation without his boat. The boat was his job. His job at that moment became consecrated as a platform for the Lord Jesus Christ, a platform for the gospel. Jesus stepped into one of the boats. He asked him to put out a little bit from the land so that he could be in the best strategic position to be an influence and to be a witness and to communicate the gospel to as many people as possible. And he sat down in the boat, and he began to teach the multitudes from the boat. I've been there a couple times on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, just just a little bit north of the land there. There are places where, uh, one, for instance, the Mount of the Beatitudes, where they believe that Jesus even... uh, uh, fed the 5,000, but certainly where he would have preached that Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And the acoustics there are incredible. When someone speaks, the, the voice just kind of travels up the hillside. We had a young lady with us uh, back when I went as, as a college student. I met a young lady with us who had just a quiet voice, and when she began to speak there, her voice just traveled up. She had a, had a, a soft voice, but her voice traveled. And so there's a strategic position here on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee where Jesus is speaking, and his voice is traveling up the shore and along the hillside there, and they're hearing Jesus teach and preach. Peter's vocation became consecrated as a platform for the gospel of Christ. That's what your job can be. That's what your vocation. You might say, I don't really understand that. My job is really nothing that special. Yes, it is special. It's special because of what it becomes a platform for. Let me illustrate it this way. In my house, you can probably tell I love a good cake. I love a good pie. And in our house, if you walk into our kitchen area... Tina will have, and she puts the good stuff, like, you know, way up high. And uh, she'll say, you know, I have a a cake plate up there. Now, we also have another cabinet where you just kind of throw everything in. You You know what goes in there? Tupperware. Stuff that you can't break, right? Listen, I'll be honest with you. Whether it's crystal or glass, one of those nice cake plates that, you know, I have to climb up and pull down, or whether it's Tupperware, it really doesn't matter that much to me. I mean, it really doesn't. Because if there's a devil's food cake, if there's a yellow cake, chocolate frosting, if there's a strawberry pie, if there's apple pie, you name it, I'm all about that. I get excited not about, well, maybe you know what? You outdid yourself. That is the most beautiful cake plate I've ever seen in my life. It's a cake plate. They look different, but they serve a function. They become a platform for that cake. That pie. See, that's the substance. That's the sweetness of the gospel that we've all called. And listen, you may say, my job's not that special. Th- that my job does not seem to exalt me. Listen, it's the substance. It's, it's the message you're communicating that makes your vocation special. That you realize that you're there on the mission for the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what you become a platform for. And you're as sweet as that cake that's on the pie plate. Your vocation becomes a platform for something even sweeter. Last week's question, as we were looking at Colossians 3, was what do you do? Whatever you do, do it all for his glory. That's the platform. It may be that you work on a farm or in a factory. That farm and that factory is to be a platform for the Lord Jesus Christ. You may be an engineer cabinet maker, a bricklayer, a salesman, a teacher, a public servant. You may work in the medical profession. Those are all beautiful cake plates. But it's a platform for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a platform for the gospel. And if you want to bring enthusiasm, if you're kind of like, and by the way, it blessed my heart that some of you last week were able to say, thank God it's Monday. I saw that on Facebook. And when I saw that posted on Facebook, I was like, yeah. We're getting the message. When you can say my work is a platform for the gospel of Jesus Christ, when you can say my school is a mission field for me to go and take Jesus, then you can wake up tomorrow morning and say, thank God it's Monday. It's time to get busy for the sake of the gospel. Once you consecrate your workplace, your school as a platform for the gospel. Then you need to commit your work to the principles of God's Word. Commit your work, that which you do, Colossians 3.23. Commit your work to the principles of God's Word. Verse 4, when Jesus had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let your nets down. Peter perhaps had a difficult time with that. See, Peter, again, he's not the only fisherman there, but he seems to be the focus. Jesus seems to be saying something to Peter. We need to come to a place in our life where we've said, you know what, I've given myself... I've given myself, I've given my work, I've given everything, my family, my home. I've given it all to Jesus Christ to be expendable for him, to be used for his glory. Now I need to listen to him and say, okay, God, this is yours. This, this education is yours. This workplace is yours. This income is yours. Everything that I'm about is, is all for your glory. Now I need some instructions. Jesus began to give Peter some instructions. He was taking him where the fish are. Now, I don't know what the miracle was here. I don't know if the miracle is that Jesus, without seeing and being a carpenter, not a fisherman, I don't know if the miracle was that Jesus knew where the fish were or if kind of like an underwater Tarzan of some kind, there, there was a, a call sent out and when Jesus said, come, the fish just came. You know what I'm saying? I don't know which, the, which miracle occurred, but I know that a miracle happened here as a result of not only Jesus being in the boat, but Peter being obedient. To his master's instructions. See, perhaps that's the bigger miracle, right? We know Jesus could bring the fish or know where they are. That's not the mi- the bigger miracle. Is that Peter, the one who was the professional, the one who seemed to be in charge here? That Peter said, "Okay, Jesus, we're going to do this your way." Sometimes we feel like we know better than God. See, if you want a testimony. If your work is going to be a platform, you want a testimony of faithfulness to God in the workplace, then you need to be faithful to his word. And in being faithful to his word, bring about a fruitfulness that only God could get glory for. I was picking on Matthew a little bit while ago for being a tax collector. It was another little guy who was a tax collector in Luke's gospel. I alluded to him momentarily uh, a little bit ago. Zacchaeus was the one being discussed in Luke chapter 19 when Jesus said, that's what I'm here for, to seek and to save the lost. Zacchaeus came to faith in Christ. He did not quit his job. But instead, he started living by the principles of God, and he went back to those he had cheated, and he made things right. And then not only did he make things right, he went the extra mile. He had a new work ethic, did he not? That new work ethic, I'm sure, caused many people to say, what happened to Zacchaeus? Man, this guy used to just rip everybody off. He used to take everything he could and some for himself. And now he is sacrificially giving everything back and then some. What got into Zacchaeus? And Zacchaeus would be able to say, I'll tell you what got into me. I met a man named Jesus. And Jesus changed my life. See, when your work becomes a platform for the gospel, you begin to commit yourself and your work to the principles of God's word, and people begin to understand, wow, God's word makes all the difference in their work. Paul told Titus to, to relay this message to those, the servants of that day. He said, tell them to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, no, no one here struggles with that, do they? Being argumentative in the workplace. Not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that everything... Listen to what Paul tells Titus to relate to the servants of that day. He says that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. That they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Why do we need to have the biblical work ethic in our workplace and obey the Word of God and commit ourselves to, to God's Word in the workplace? Is because when we do that, we adorn. The gospel of Jesus Christ. We adorn the gospel of our God. If we're always taking shortcuts, if we're always trying to cheat our boss, if we're trying to see what we can get away with, if we see how late we can come in, how early we can leave, if we're trying to do as little as we possibly can and get away with it and get paid for it, if we do it drudgingly saying, I don't want to be here, I hate being here, then we're not adorning the gospel of our God. But when we can wake up and we can go to our workplace or our school with passion and enthusiasm and commitment and say, God, I'm giving you my best. I'm doing this as unto the Lord. We adorn the gospel of our God. We become a good testimony in that platform God has given us. Look at verses 5 and the following here. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, what we have toiled all night and caught nothing, nevertheless, at your word I will let down the net. See, sometimes what God is telling us to do, as we saw in our in our life group study this morning, God's word to Abraham concerning Isaac, sometimes God's word may not even make sense in this world. But when we can't trace his hand, I believe it was Spurgeon that said, we can trust his heart. When they had done this, they caught a great number of fish. Their net was breaking. They had to sig- signal to their partners. In the other boat, to come and help them out. They filled the boats so much so that the boats began to sink. And there's such a a lesson on evangelism here as we understand Peter becoming a fisherman. But that's not the point I want us to embrace this morning. I want us to understand something about the fruitfulness that comes from being obedient to the Word of God. When we simply do things the way God tells us to do things, then our vocation, our calling will be much more fruitful day in and day out. Being generous because God said be generous. Being respectful to those who work over us, those who work under us. Being respectful because we're adorning the gospel of Christ. Working with honesty and treating people with respect. Treating people fair. Winning people to Christ. Because we've committed our work to the principles of God's word. It means we just got to take God's word when he says, this is the way you do business, this is the way you treat people, this is the way you forgive, this is the way you love the (laughs) unlovely. We say, okay, God, you, you said to do it this way, this is the way I'm going to do it. I don't know if I can afford to do it your way, Lord. Listen, we can't afford not to do it God's way. And if we want to be a witness for his glory and we want to be fruitful in our work, then we've got to do what he told us to do. In John chapter 15, Jesus is saying over and over again, if you abide in my words, you're going to bear fruit. And so listen to me and do the work my way. Why? Because he sees, he has a perspective that we could not possibly have. Now this afternoon, now Pastor Ben was talking about March Madness a while ago. This afternoon, we will not be too much into March Madness around my house for a couple of reasons, like Kent's last place in all our little brackets anyway, and I'm falling fast because I picked Arizona and they got beat last night. So, so our attention will shift this afternoon we're going we're gonna to leave basketball behind and we're going to get our eyes back on the priority, right? Right? NASCAR. Right? Back to NASCAR. See, those drivers, it's amazing today. When they get in those cars, they strap themselves in. they got all this power behind them. But here's what's interesting. I don't see how they see anything. Back in the day, you know, when, when, when I was Kent's age and watched NASCAR, they didn't even have a face. You know, they, they had goggles on or something. But they could turn their heads. They could stick their head out the window if they wanted to. I mean, they, they were looking all around. They had all this freedom now because of the straps and the devices. They're kind of glued, and they've got this thing pressed against the side of their helmet, and, and, and they can only look in front of them and, and see a mirror here. They rely big time on people with a certain vocation called spotters. Thank you. Others of you knew that too, not just Kent. He's not the only good NASCAR redneck in here. Um, They rely big-time on spotters, somebody else who can see everything that's going on around them, they're like, listen, I know this is your job, drive that car, and you've been given the power to drive that car, but you've got to listen to me. I'm, I can see things you can't see, and a good spotter will see what is happening before it even happens and give them instructions, go up, go down, slow down, speed up. They rely heavily on their spotter. Listen, God has a perspective in this world that we do not have because in, he's infinite and we're finite. He has given us the power to be a witness. Acts eight: you shall receive Power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and what do you do with that power? You shall be my witnesses. If you're not witnessing, if you're not telling the story of Jesus, you're not operating in his power, but when we are doing that, he's going to tell us to do some things from time to time that we're going to say, Lord, I just don't think your word makes sense here. What you're telling me as I pray and I seek your face and I start this day, how you're telling me to to show love to this person in this situation, to reach out or to give that back or, or whatever it is in your vocation, you may say, I don't get the big picture. That's okay. He sees what you can't see. And as you become obedient to him, he brings a fruitfulness to your work that becomes a witness for his glory. Proverbs 22 and 29 tells us we, we, can, we can become skilled in our work and work hard. And through that skill and hard work, we'll come before kings. I think the principle there for us today is simply this. God's going to increase our influence. Remember that prayer of Jabez where he said, Increase my territory, expand my borders. For the Christian, that means, God, give me greater opportunity to influence more people for your glory. And God says, if you will do things my way, you're going to have a greater influence than you could ever imagine. Once we come to that place, then we need to seed, C-E-D-E, seed. Not I know the, those who work on a farm, you know a different kind of seed. You've got to seed the soil, right? But I'm talking about C-E-D-E, seed, your work to the priority of God's work. What does the word seed mean? It means to abandon or surrender. Abandon or surrender. And that just depends on what God is telling you to do in any given situation. Interesting response here. Look at verse 8. When Peter saw this this large catch, he, he fell down at the knees of Jesus. And he said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Now, I would have thought the natural reaction here would have been for Peter, perhaps maybe like when his mother-in-law got healed, for him to celebrate and say, Yes, Jesus did it again. Hey, everybody, can't you see he is who he claims to be? He did another miracle. Do you see all these fish? Whoo, he's celebrating. He's excited. We're bringing the fish in. But that's not not the response we see. It's not the response we see. It's one of humble worship, brokenness, elements we would see in what theologians call a theophany. Now, here we know the presence of God was there in a special way because Jesus was the Son of God. And he is in their midst, but it's it's Peter being overwhelmed to be in the presence of a powerful God. Some said that the posture that he takes. You know, they're, they're, this story couldn't have been real because Peter falls at the feet of Jesus, and in a boat that would not have been possible to do. But in 1986, they found the hull of one of these Galilean fishing boats. That was 2,000 years old. So it's, it's a Galilean fishing boat that would have been around in the days of Christ. I think that's really cool. I always think to myself when I see pictures of this, it's on display now in Israel. I think, man, what if, what if that's the boat? Now, know, we can use our sanctified imagination from time to time, right? What if that was the boat that Peter was in? <laughs> what if it's the boat that Peter stepped out of when he walked on the water? But this boat was 26 feet long, 7 feet wide. There was plenty of room on the boat for not only the boat to be filled with nets full of fish, but this encounter that Peter experienced. Now, Peter hasn't sold his boats yet, but look what happens. For he and all, this is verse 9, for he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch. So also were James and John. Interestingly, James and John become part of that inner circle of followers of Christ, sons of Zebedee who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid, for from now on you will catch men. I've heard it said this way, Jesus calls his followers to be fishers of men, so if we're not fishing, we're not following. If we're not fishing, we're not following. He calls them to be fishers of men. But when they brought their nets to the land, verse 11 says, they forsook all To follow him, they left everything behind. Say, well, so they they sold their boats that day? No. What happened after the resurrection or, or before the resurrection of Christ, before they, according to John's gospel, before the disciples encountered Christ there again on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, they were doing what? They were fishing again. They were fishing again. So at this very moment, it didn't mean they went and they sold all of their fishing gear. They probably did a lot of fishing intertwined with all of their ministry, eventually becoming full-time apostles, if you want to look at it that way, eventually selling out and going full-time in a ministry. But there was something that happened on this day. And that is, they, they abandoned or surrendered what they were doing for the sake of something that was more important. That's following Jesus. I don't think that that forsake or or, or abandonment here is speaking from hyperbole, but I, I do believe that there are times that we can compare it to something like that. For instance, when it comes to following Christ, Jesus says, You must hate your father and your mother and your brothers and your sisters. Well, we know that Jesus doesn't mean we're to literally hate our family. We're supposed to love our family. Scripture tells us again and again how we're to love and respect and serve our family members. So we know we're supposed to love our family. What Jesus was saying is simply this. Our devotion to his calling on our life... Our devotion to being a disciple and a Christ follower should be so powerful, so rich, so strong, that in comparison, all other relationships will be almost like hate, even though we know that we're to love them. Fishing for fish, literally, from this day forward would pale in comparison to fishing for men. What they did vocationally, their work again would just be a platform. It would just be a place. It would be an opportunity for them to do what they were really all about, and that was serving the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a number of ways you can do that. Obviously, we're to surrender our work to a greater work. Have you ever walked into a Chick fil A restaurant and read the purpose statement on the wall? How many of you have read that before? The purpose statement in Chick-fil-A? I, it astounds me that they still put this purpose statement up in all their stores. Here, here's the purpose statement for Chick-fil-A. The reason we exist is to glorify, quote, to glorify God by being a faithful steward of all that is entrusted to us to have a positive influence on all who come in contact with Chick-fil-A. We want to glorify God and influence people. That's their purpose. Uh, their purpose is to make a great chicken sandwich, Right? Their purpose is to glorify God and influence people. If Chick-fil-A can do that making sandwiches, then you can do it in your vocation. I can do it in my calling. You say, well, you're a pastor. That's what you're supposed to. We're all called of God to serve him. say, well, I don't know. Pastor, I can't really make a difference. Pastor, you don't know where I work. Man, I work with some hard, hard knuckleheads, hard to reach people. It's just tough. People Are going to make fun of me if I start witnessing? I I remember the story. Many of you have heard this before, but the boy was walking on the seashore after a storm, and he saw all these starfish that had been washed up on the beach, and he began to pick up the starfish. There were thousands of them, as far as you could see, and he began to throw the starfish back into the water one at a time. And a man walked up and said, Son, what are you trying to do? Look, there's so many of them this way and that way, starfish everywhere. You're just not going to make a difference. You need to stop all this. And he picked up another starfish that was still alive. He threw it in the water and said, I made a difference to that one. You don't know who you're making a difference in the life of in your workplace. When you seed your work for the priority of God's work, you're saying, Lord, what you have me here for is even more important than what I'm here for. Robert Lewis, in his workbook, Winning at Work and Home, says you need about three things if you're going to fish for people at the workplace. A, you need a credible Christian lifestyle. A credible Christian lifestyle. In other words, we've heard it said this way before, don't talk the talk if you don't walk the walk. Your walk gives credibility to your talk. Your walk gives credibility to your talk, but we do have to talk it because your talk gives clarity to your Walk. So live it out to open up opportunities to speak it. And then when you have the opportunity to speak it, be sure to speak it. Because I still haven't been in a situation, even though I used to hear it, all kinds of uh, parachurch organizations I was involved with, and even sometimes in youth groups and things like that. Man, if you'll just live the Christian life, people will run to you and say, man, what is it that's different about you? I've come to realize that most people are afraid to run to me and ask that question. So we need to speak it. St. Francis of Assisi is famous for saying, preach the gospel, use words if necessary. The truth of the matter is words are necessary because Romans says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So your walk gives credibility to your talk. A credible Christian lifestyle. B says opportunity and courage. So pray every day, God, give me an opportunity to be on mission. Give me an opportunity to witness for you today and then the courage to do it when it happens. And finally, a basic evangelism plan. First Peter chapter 3 and verse 15 says that we need to be ready to give a defense for the hope that is within us. That word defense, apologia, a defense. Why we believe what we believe. We need to be ready to explain the gospel and why we believe it. And most of us aren't well equipped in that. And we're going to do something to help you out this morning when you leave. You can be equipped with the gospel. And I'll explain that more after the service or at the end of the service. Right now I just want to ask you a question. Have you looked at your workplace as a platform for the gospel have you given everything to him and said lord i'm going to do it by the book by your book and i ask that you be glorified in this world through it your workplace your school wherever you spend your time throughout the week that 60 to 65 percent of waking hours are you using it for his glory well i want to ask you to bow your heads with me right now